We've been working our way through the first epistle of Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21 this morning. If you turn in your Bibles there, or as always, the passage is printed in your bulletin. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Right off the bat, we come across, it's a small word, but it's a very important word. Look with me. What is that word? It's the word, Therefore. So one of my professors in seminary, he told me the little trick that whenever you come, come across a therefore in the Bible, you got to know what it's there for. <laughs> and if you have your, you can't see it in the bulletin because we don't have the previous verses, but Peter is linking up this section, 13 through 21, with the previous paragraph of verse 3 through 9. Therefore, in light of the great salvation that God has given you, in light of the new birth that he's provided for you in the spirit, in light of the imperishable inheritance, and he goes on and on. In light of that, you, this is your appropriate response. This is the very first command that's given in the first epistle of Peter. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Verse 14. As obedient children, I do not want you to conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and this gets repeated again and again in the book of Leviticus. So my footnote says Leviticus, Leviticus 11.44, 19.2, and 27. Just as it is written, be holy because I am holy. In verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man and woman's work impartially, Live your lives as strangers or ex- exiles. So he picks, on the, picks up on the exile theme that he spoke about earlier in the book. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your forefathers. You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That is a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, and he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the long and short of these two paragraphs that we just read, it's holiness, right? God God is saying, in light of the great salvation that has been offered you, you're supposed to strive to live a holy life. Now, if you've been in church, you've heard that message a lot before. The reason being because the Bible repeats that message a lot. The holiness message. I mean, from cover to cover, beginning to end, this, this call for holiness rings throughout the Bible. We talked, to, we just read from Leviticus how God says, I want you to be holy. Why? Because I am holy. 
And you've been recreated in Christ to be like me. And so you're supposed to, you're supposed to live in a God-like manner, in, in, in this, this manner of holiness. But what is holiness? If you were to interview the guy on the street and you talk to him about holy, or what's a holy man or a holy woman, or holy, what is holiness? At its worst, I think most people would think of a, a sanctimonious spirit, right? A holier-than-thou kind of spirit. Somebody who follows all the rules and tries to impose the rules on everybody else. Or the picture, the classic picture we might have in mind is the picture of the monk who's detached from the world. The monk who's in his brown tunic and bald head and he's living off in a cave somewhere chanting psalms. Or we might think of the parochial school nun who goes about wrapping the kids' knuckles with the ruler when they, when they disobey. I mean, most of the associations we have in the broader culture and even within the church when we talk about holiness is negative. Let me tell you what I really think the Bible says about holiness. Great picture that I came across this week. Let's suppose you're reading on the internet, reading an article, and you come... You're enjoying this paper or article. It's, it's really good. Maybe it's a book that you're reading. And you come across a line in, in it where you say, I could use that line. That would, what I just read, that quote would be perfect in the research paper that I'm writing or the sales pitch that I'm crafting. That would be just the perfect line for me. And so what do you do at that moment when you find it? You hit Control-X on the keyboard or Control-C, your shortcut, you cut it out and you paste it into your doc file or your PowerPoint presentation. You cut it out in order to use it. So when the Bible talks about holiness, yes, it does. it is referring to this, this idea of being set apart, but it's not set apart in the way that a monk is sequestered in a cave, and it's not set apart in the way that a family heirloom sits up on the shelf in the china cabinet collecting dust. It is, holiness is to be set apart for the purpose of use. Holiness is when you look at God and you say to him, use me. Use me, Lord. I belong to you. I, I'm set apart to you. I'm dedicated solely for your use, and I want you to use me. And I think that's... A, it's an excellent way of picturing it because normally we associate all the negative and a very passive view of holiness. But no, it's an active, energetic spirit that says, I want to be used by you. Is that the way that you associate the word? Why do we get ne- misunderstood associations with the word holiness? I think in the Old Testament, you know that the people of God had to follow many, many regulations, many ceremonial laws. It was easy for them to associate holiness merely with with the the rules, basically. So do not eat pork. Okay, check off that box. Not going to eat pork. Uh, Be circumcised. Okay, I will do that. But And so it would be easy to associate all this rule-keeping with Ah, now I'm a holy person. But Jesus comes along and he says, this is an attitude of the heart. He's always trying to get at our heart. He's always speaking about the matter of the heart. And and it's the heart that is holy. It is the heart that says, I want 
all my life to be consumed in service to God. It's my heart that says the only way to live is go for broke, all in, enthusiasm for Jesus Christ. And that's what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about holiness. So if we start out there with that agreed upon definition of holiness, we can go back to our passage now and consider what Peter's actually talking about, and that is, how do we become holy? How do we grow in, in holiness? And some, one important, very important, since we already are holy, you know the word saint literally means holy one. All saints is, are people who have been, by Jesus, by virtue of Jesus' life and death, set apart for God. You're already holy. You're, a, you're called a saint. Now, how do I be what... How do I do what I am already what I already am? How do I how do we be what we already are? And that's the question of holiness. So Peter gives us several answers to that question. Number one, first, look with me in verse 13. He says, To grow in holiness, you have to prepare your mind for action. Is that what everybody's translation says? Does anybody bring a Bible to church anymore? <laughs> if you're looking at one of the old translations. It's at, in the Greek, there's a very wooden idiom here. I think it's in the King James Version. It's in a few others. What, is this, what does he say? He says, literally, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's strange. I didn't think my loins were up there. You know? How does that work? Well, the dress code in their day, they wore these long flowing robes that might extend you know, all the way to the, your shin or even to your ankles which were fine if you were walking along, but if there was any point in time that you needed to run or if you were heading into battle and you needed to fight, the the robes would be very restrictive. So you would take your long flowing robes and you would tuck them into your belt so that you could move more quickly. And that's what Peter, he's using that image. He says, do that with your brain. Do that with your mind. Get this old bean... (laughs) Working a little harder than it normally does. And the very next thing he says is, in my translation, I grew up on the NIV. NIV is, old NIV is my mother tongue, but it's again paraphrastic here. He literally says, be sober. My translation says, be self-controlled, but be sober-minded. In other words, don't be the way that you are after three beers, like whenever, when somebody drinks three or four beers, they think that they're the wittiest philosopher in the room, right? They think that their mind is functioning at optimal capacity, when in reality, your mind is, is totally fuzzy. What you've got to do is prepare your mind for action. You've got to be sober-minded. You've got to get the old bean moving faster. It's hard to do that, I find, in our culture today, because we're constantly being bombarded with so many distractions, our phones are always going off. Our, and even when our phones are not going off, we think they're going off. How many times have you heard your phone you know, beep at you or ring, and you pull it up to see the text message? There's nothing there. It's, it, was, it was a phantom ring. It was totally in your mind. How many times have you felt your leg vibrate only to realize there's no phone in my pocket? We actually have phantom vibrations. We're constantly being distracted. We're Aren't we? Isn't it hard to think and concentrate very clearly at all for 10 minutes 
to read difficult material, to dig down deep. Read somebody's Facebook status. They said, uh, quote, ask me about my attention deficit disorder or pie or my cat. Look, a doggy video. I'm going to buy a bike. Do you like TV? Hi. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) When Peter is talking about this, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of focus. When you watch, if you watch, the Super Bowl later today, I mean, those guys are not pegging the IQ, the top of the IQ scale for the most part. And yet consider the level of intense focus that that's necessary to play in that. I mean, not just the quarterback. I mean, it is a quarterback's league. But I mean, even the big 350-pound defensive linemen, that you've got to, they have to have had to have considered all the formations and all the stunts and all of the plays. There's so many route assignments for the wide receivers. You think how much intensity of focus is necessary to play a stupid game of football. And then you contrast that with the intensity and focus of five-year-old youth soccer, right? You know, they're out there, they're so cute, (laughs) running around after the ball until the butterfly flies by them, and then they see the dandelion, and they sit down in the middle of the field. To To be honest with you, most Christians play youth soccer in their minds, Mark Knoll, he came, the theologian, or church historian, rather, at, I think he's at Notre Dame. Right now, Mark Knoll, back in the 90s, he published a very important book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He said, the, the, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't one, that it's so slushy. Brothers and sisters, the most practical advice I can give you is that if you don't want to grow as a Christian, if you don't want to grow in holiness, this is what you do. You do absolutely nothing. Nada. Don't study. Don't don't train. Don't read hard books. Don't listen to hard sermons. Just immerse yourself in Twitter-induced hypnosis, as I've heard it called before, and spend all your time on TMZ and read People Magazine. If you don't want to grow, just let your brain... Keep with the status quo of the world and, and overly entertain yourself. I was listening to Matt Chandler. He was speaking at a young adults conference, and he said, I really believe that if you study history, you'd find that we are the most entertained generation that has ever been alive, ever. Like no group of human beings that's ever walked the face of planet Earth has had more to divert themselves more to entertain themselves, and yet probably there's never been a group of people who's been more bored than we are. We're, we're bored to death. Our boredom death certainly doesn't take our minds to, to any place productive. It just leads us into, into temptation. So the most practical advice I can give to you is don't change. Don't do a thing. If you don't want to grow, because the only way you will grow is getting into the habit of more reflective thinking that Peter describes here. That's number one. Number two, how else should we grow in holiness? The second half of verse 13, he says this, set your hope, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
You may have seen the headline this week, the, the, number, the amount of money that's going to be bet on the Super Bowl today. A lot of money. Like $4.2 billion worth of money is going to be bet on the Super Bowl today. It's interesting to me that that's, that's the people who do so think they have an answer to the most important question. Who's going to win the game? Who's going to cover the spread? They think they know the answer to that. And they think they know the answer to lots of other very important questions, like how long is the national anthem going to take, right? Over and under, two minutes. I think I know. And they, One guy laid $600,000 uh, down on the game. Um, or other important questions, like how many times will the announcers make reference to dabbing? How many, will Peyton Manning cry at any point during a telecast? And you can actually place a prop bet on whether or not an earthquake will take place during the game. And there's, there's people, apparently a lot of people in the world today believe they, have, they know the answer to that question. And yet they don't know the answer to the question, what is the purpose of my life? What difference does it make that I will have walked on the face of planet Earth? So USA Today came out just recently with, I think it was a survey that that said what probably all of us are not surprised to hear, that the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans have no clue what the purpose of their life is. They have absolutely no clue what their, their destiny is. And they don't even like to be asked that question. If you try to press a colleague, what's the purpose of your life? It's almost offensive that you would that you would, they get angry with you. They shut you down. That's the end of the conversation. I don't want to think about that, is the American response. That just makes no sense to me. Here's here's an illustration. What if I told you that you have to, this week for Saturday, block out your calendar from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock this coming Saturday to spend Saturday with the pastor? All day Saturday. It's just you and me. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? <laughs> what are we going to do? What are, are we going to sit in a room and just stare at each other and have nothing to say for nine hours? Are we going to do yard work around the church building? Am I going to read the Bible to you for nine straight hours? Am I going to preach for nine, a nine-hour sermon? See, you don't know until you've you get the answer to the question, what's the purpose of, of our meeting? Now, you would not spend an entire Saturday with somebody without asking and answering the question, what's the purpose of our meeting? Because I don't want to waste my time. I don't. And yet, how do you know your life isn't one grand waste of time if you don't know the purpose of it? You don't know until, until you start to answer, and yet... You can't tell me the reason for your life. Here's Peter. He's saying, don't waste your life. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given to you at the return of Jesus Christ. This is Transfiguration Sunday. And Peter was probably the best guy in the world to be able to tell us what really matters. He had tasted the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He knew that 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 glory he saw was a foretaste of the, the coming Jesus. He knew how incredible it would be to hear from the glorified Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master's rest. He knew how awful it would be 
to hear from the glorified Jesus, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. That's, there's only two things that are going to be said at the end of time when Jesus returns. Those two, two words. So Peter is saying to these suffering Christians scattered around Turkey, set your hearts fully on that moment to be given at Christ's return. Of that command, the word that stood out most to me was the word fully, not partially, but like with every fiber of your you, every fiber of your being, every ounce of who you are, focus on the breathtaking wonder of being glorified with the Lord Jesus. Can you do that? Is that possible even to fully? Somebody was talking the, uh, the other day, and, and they, they asked the question, do you miss being 21? Those of you who are 40 and over like me, do you miss being 21? Um, I miss aspects of being 21. I miss the stamina that I had at 21. I miss the muscles that I really didn't have <laughs> at 21. I look in the mirror and I see, I still have hair, thanks be to God, but it's thinning. I miss the hair at 21. I miss the sex appeal that I didn't have at 21. (laughs) There are a lot of aspects that we miss about 21, but but the one thing that I don't miss at all is the lack of perspective I had at 21. I think at 21, it's almost impossible to fulfill this command. That a 21-year-old say, I will set my hope fully on what Jesus, what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Because what? I've got the, my whole life ahead of me to look forward to. I've got plenty of things that I want to see and do, an entire life before me. It's hard to do. Is it hard to set your hope fully on the grace that's revealed when you're 60 or when you're 70 or when the doctor says you got three months? Or when you lose your spouse of 50 years. So that's the kind of perspective that you get when you're older. Um, it's so rare to find in youth this, what Peter's talking about. And that's why it's so powerful in the rare instances that you do find it. It's, it's why it's so moving when you finally see, in, in a, or you actually see in a 16-year-old or 18-year-old or a 21-year-old, the penny drop. And in the early days of their life, they realize this is what it's all about. <laughs> to get that in your youth. I, that's what I wish for every single kid in our church, that you would get that in your youth. And that you would get what's the old phrase, only one life will soon be passed, but all that's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will, will last. Um, have you gotten that? Even if, have you gotten that in your 40s or your 50s? How do we keep reinforcing that in our lives? I heard about a nurse this week. Actually, Susie told me this. There's a nurse, a Christian nurse in a hospital. She said, how do I practice my faith there in the hospital? She says, one of the things I've been working on is utilizing physical cues in order to remind myself of spiritual truth. So she said, when I go in, before I go into a hospital room, what I do is I place my hand on the doorpost of the hospital room, and that's like a physical reminder to me that I will pray for the, for the patient I'm going to see. 
I probably would forget to do it if I didn't have the physical cue of putting my hand on the, on the doorpost, but that's what I, what I do. I heard of another Christian who said, the way that they were playing, every time I hear a trumpet blow, what's the significance of the trumpet blow in the Bible? And the la- on the return of Christ, the last trumpet will blow, and the, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who are alive will go and meet Meet him every single time I hear a trumpet. Now it would be difficult if you were in the band and you heard <laughs> trumpets all the time or if you are in part of the Philharmonic. But, but every single time I whisper to myself, soon the trumpet shall sound. Soon the trumpet shall sound. And that's how I consciously remind myself of the hope. Number three, third way that Peter instructs us on growing in holiness It is in verse 14. He says, no, it's not in verse 14. It is in verse 17. There we go. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. That's a a sobering, since you call on a father who judges everybody... Body's work impartially. Your Father in heaven is no respecter of persons. No one has an inside track to the Father. Nobody has any special pull with, the, not even his kids, Peter's saying. Not even you sons and daughters. Just the fact that he's your Father doesn't mean that he's going to say, eh, you're my kid, adultery, no big deal. Theft, eh. kids will be kids, and you're my kids, pat you on the... No, Peter says, at the end of time, God is going to take an assessment of the entirety of our lives. He's going to say, well, okay, you, you profess to follow my son Jesus. You, you claim to be a follower of Christ. Has your life reflected that profession? There was a... a when I grew up, growing up, I had a Christian... You guys, anybody listen to DC Talk back in the 90s? One of the quotes before one of the songs, DC Talk in the 90s, he says, the the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who profess Jesus Christ with their lips and deny him with their lives. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And that's what God will test on that final day. He will test whether or not your lives have have reflected the the holiness that your Father in heaven has called you to. And And notice, Peter's not writing this to the world. He's writing this to Christians, to suffering Christians, actually, as a wake up call to certain Christians, saying, You must be holy in all that you do. For as it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So, one way to think about this imagine. You're very generous, and you decide that you're going to, uh, how shall we do this? You're going to allow a college student to stay at your house in perpetuity for free. You say to that student, hey, you can have the whole house, the, the entire 5,000 square feet that we don't live in. <laughs> the, the, you can have the whole house. The, you can live here, sleep here, eat here, swing from the the chandeliers, if you so desire. You can have the entire place, except you just can't go into this one room. 
That room is my room. I live there. I stay there. If you are in the position to say to a person, you have a whole house, but, but, you, can't, but you can't have this one thing, except this one thing, then in effect, they don't have the whole house. You still have the house. If you're in the position to command somebody that you can have this, all this, but not this, then in effect, obviously, you're still in charge. And that's exactly what a lot of Christians do. They say to God, we say to God, Father, I will give you this part of my life and this part of my life and this part. Aren't I generous? Look, I'm I'm yielding so much of my life to you, except for that. (laughs) There's that one thing. Not right now. No, no, not that area. I'll give you every other part of my life. If you say that to him, you haven't given him your life. If we go back to the original definition of holiness, that's not holiness. Because you're still in control. I'm not saying that you have to be perfectly obedient. Of course, Peter wasn't expecting these Christians to be perfectly obedient. Do you know any Christian that's perfectly obedient? He didn't expect that. But he did expect that we would surrender ourselves fully to our Father. Every area of life. That's why he says, just as your Father who calls you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. In all that you do. He says, verse 16. And your Father is an impartial judge. So let's recap before we, get, before we end it here. I tried to say at the beginning of the sermon that holiness is not the kind of misunderstandings we have of the monk in the cave or being set apart on the shelf. Holiness is an active, I want to I serve you. I want to be used by you. I said that holiness begins as we get the old being thinking hard and focusing and fighting against our twitchiness, and our, against our phones. And we're supposed to think specifically about the grace and put our hope fully on the grace that is going to be ours when Christ returns. And we're supposed to be sober-minded. He says, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear because your father is an impartial judge. But if you want to get to the very, very heart of why it is that any Christian should be holy, it's because of the redemption price. It's because of what has been paid. Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Remember, redeemed was the language of just buying a slave out of the marketplace. And the way that you buy a slave is with perishable things, with money. It was not with perishable things that you were bought, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. But you were redeemed by what? The precious blood of Christ. So here's the last story I want to tell you. Rob Rayburn, who I mentioned a number of times from the pulpit, is pastor, great pastor up in Tacoma. He's on the board of Covenant College. Covenant College is the PCA, it's our denomination's college in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. His father was, if I'm not mistaken, one of the founding professors at Covenant College. I didn't know this, but Covenant actually, before they were in Georgia... They started out in 1955 in L.A. Did you know that? Started in L.A. and then they moved to St. Louis. Alex is from Lookout Mountain. so They moved to St. Louis. And then 
sometime in the 60s, I want to say, they bought a hotel on the top of Lookout Mountain. It's beautiful. You can see all three Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia from there. Spectacular campus. A, a hotel that was going defunct, and they ended up buying it, and that was the new college home. Well, his dad was, was one of the founding professors, and so I, I assume that this is a true story. He would know the validity of this story. In the early years, as Covenant Seminary was being founded, and, and a uh, donor came to them and said, we will give you a quarter of a million dollars, $250,000, which in 1960s currency was a lot of money, especially for a fledgling college that's trying to get off. $250,000 if you will do just one thing. Remove William Cowper's hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, out of, out of the hymnal that you keep in chapel. One thing. Why would they want to do that? Because we're scientific modern people now. And we know that this whole blood and gore thing that the ancients used to think was important for... So we know we've, we've, we're more enlightened. We've graduated from that. This whole blood is, is offensive. We will give you a quarter of a million dollars just to take out the reference to blood. Because we hate the blood. Do you know what it, what's the significance of the blood? Why is it that Jesus didn't just you know, prick, prick his finger and uh, smear that across the, the, on top of the cross? Why didn't he do it that way? Why didn't he just cut his hand and that would be a lot of blood. He'd still survive if you let it drop out on the ground. Because it's not, it's not the blood. It's what the blood symbolizes. It's all about the Passover lamb of Exodus 12 where you were supposed to, as a family, go out to your family flock and you were, to, you were to search carefully to find that one little lamb that was without blemish and without defect. It didn't have a fifth leg. It didn't even have a mole growing on its body. Your best lamb, you were to, to slay. You were to take the blood and you were to sprinkle it on the doorframe of your house. And in so doing, you would avert the wrath of God, the judgment of God that came from the destroying angel. See, it wasn't the blood itself. It was what the blood symbolized. And the blood represents the perfect, sinless life of Jesus Christ that was poured out unto death for us. How much is that blood worth to you? Well, apparently, a whole lot more than $250,000 because they said, no way. (laughs) And Cowper's still in the hymnal today. How much is that blood worth? I was reading a prayer this week in my Valley of Vision. It was actually Friday. It was the, it came, I came across it. It is the prayer called the precious blood. The, the precious blood. Before thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity which caused you to be accursed, my evil which incited divine wrath. I saw the blood, your blood, the blood of the incarnate God, I saw that your blood is worth infinite. It's value beyond all thought. And he goes on, Sinner that I am, why should I, why should the sun give me light? Sinner that I am, that, why should the air supply me breath? Why should the ground still bear my feet? And why, why should you die for me? Your compassion is so great. 
Your heart longs to rescue. Your love endured my curse. Your mercy bore my stripes. And that is why your blood is precious to me. It is infinitely precious blood, brothers and sisters. And, and so we come to the end. If, if you know that you're redeemed by this precious blood, the only proper response to the precious blood is giving yourself to him in holiness. If you know that he utterly gave himself willing for you, willingly for you on the cross, the only proper response is giving yourself <clears throat> utterly to him right now and go for broke, all in, enthusiastic, no price is too much, holiness for Jesus Christ. Amen.